Hello, you're listening to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. I am William Morgan, and today on this 112th episode of 42 Minutes, I am joined by Alan Abadessa Green, host of Always Record and Synchronize, also of SyncBook Radio, who will be riding shotgun in place of my regular co-host, Douglas Bowles. We also have a special treat for you today. We are very thankful to have Andras Jones, host of Radio 8 Ball, waiting in the wings, who will be joining us to play the Pop Oracle after our initial 42 minutes with our interviewee, Gary Lockman. Gary Lockman has more than a dozen books to his name on topics ranging from the evolution of consciousness and the Western esoteric tradition to literature and suicide and the history of popular culture. He has written books on Jung, Ospensky, Rudolf Steiner, and Madame Blavatsky. His newest book is called The Caretakers of the Cosmos. Gary was also a founding member of the rock group Blondie, and as such is a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. His website is garylockman.co.uk. Hello, Mr. Lockman. Thank you for joining us today. Absolutely my pleasure. Perhaps we could start off, or should start off, with a quick overview of your transition from music to mysticism. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, basically, uh, I've always started reading about this sort of thing, the sort of thing I write about, um, when I was playing in Blondie in 1975, when I was living in the Lower East Side on on the Bowery with Christine and Debbie Harry. And I had been reading lots of other things, but philosophy and, and um, you know, literature and poetry and so on, but I hadn't any interest in the occult. And Chris and Debbie had a kind of kitschy sort of, you know, interest in it. And so there was, you know, quite a few sort of occult kind of things around where we lived. And also there was all this debris left over from the last generation from the 60s. And I was a kid during that time. So there was sort of older people on that scene in, in the New York scene uh, then, and they had stuff left over. And there was um, someone living in this uh, loft with us, an artist. He used to do uh, paintings of uh, tarot cards. And he based a lot of his paintings on um, Alistair Crowley's tarot deck, the Thoth tarot deck. And he would also give these sort of impromptu readings uh, of the deck. And so he sort of got me interested in, in Alistair Crowley and magic and that kind of thing. And then there was another very influential uh, a book uh, that um, really got me uh, going on. It was a book called The Occult by Colin Wilson, who's a British writer. And this was written in the early 70s. And what made me very interested in it is that it was relating occult phenomena, the paranormal and magic and altered states and all of that sort of thing to philosophy and literature and psychology and existentialism and things of that sort. So it was something much more than a kind of, you know, spooky book of spells or ghost stories. It was basically (laughs) talking about consciousness, basically talking about consciousness. So in any case, Long story short, I started reading about all this stuff back then. So this is 1975. So throughout that whole time when I was playing in Blondie, then when I left Blondie, I had a group called The No. Uh, that title came from, from my interest in Gnosticism. If you, if you look at the songs I wrote when I was in Blondie, there was one song, the, the sort of my parting song to them is, is how it's often introduced. I'm always touched by your presence, dear. And that's a song about these sort of um, precognitions and kind of shared dreams I was having with my girlfriend at the time. And I think it's the only song that ever got into the top 10 that's about telepathy or also has the word theosophy in, in the lyrics. <laughs> so I, I was interested in this sort of thing for a very long time. And, but it wasn't until many years later after I stopped playing 
music in the early 80s after my own band i i played um for a year with iggy pop on on two um uh, north american tours and then after that i i sort of retired from sex drugs and rock and roll it was it was quite a tour and then i spent another 10 years back in university doing different sorts of things traveling trying to write but reading and reading and reading deeper and deeper and deeper and broadening my my sort of knowledge of these things until i went from being sort of a naive enthusiast when i first you know, came into contact with it too. Gradually, I guess, sort of an historian in a way, a, a, a kind of amateur historian of it. So my interest in it goes far back, but it took me a long time to develop the ability to write about it in any any kind of interesting way. I mean, that didn't start until the early 90s when I, I started doing book reviews and magazine articles for magazines like Gnosis, uh, which isn't around anymore, but it was a very good magazine in the late 80s, early 90s about magic and the occult and the Western esoteric tradition and so on. Uh, and so various other things like that. So gradually when I, I moved to London in 96, I started writing more here. And then uh, I got my first book contract in 1999. So there you go. So th that's kind of the not so quick overview. Is this attitude or this focus, is it quite prolific in the industry or did you feel kind of the odd man out? Well, at the time it was, and I know in recent years it's become, um, I mean, I just was writing about this actually, I just finished writing a book about Aleister Crowley, um, emphasizing his influence on pop culture and how he became a kind of icon. I mean, for your listeners, Aleister Crowley, the great beast 666 was the most infamous <laughs> magician of the 20th century. Um, he's famous for his philosophy of do without wilt, which in many ways is taken to be a kind of license for hedonism, but in its real sense is something more than that. But Understandably so, it's been it's been interpreted that way. And so he was like the original sex, drugs, and rock and roll guy before rock and roll came around. In recent times, some rappers have got into Crowley and people like Lady Gaga. And there's all this kind of flack on the on the on the web from uh, Christian fundamentalist sites about how you know Satan and Crowley are being evoked by by these rappers and so on. But at the time when we were playing in New York and and uh, you know in the CBGB days, no, it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't part of that. That was sort of the you know, the previous generation. So I, I was sort of more or less odd man out. I mean, I used to carry books around with me all the time when I went on tour. So I was, I, I didn't party as much as, uh, you know, the other, the other guys, the big guys. I was, I was back, you know, in the hotel room uh, reading um, Yates or, you know, or Gurdjieff or something like that. And uh, not all the time, but sufficiently enough to, you know, uh, be different. But, uh, but, you know, over the years, you've seen, you know, people be interested in this. I mean, my first book, Turn Off Your Mind, the mystic 60s and the dark side of the age of Aquarius, a lot of it is about how pop music in the 60s was was um, influenced or informed with a lot of occult and magical ideas. You know, I mean, Crowley, again, he he, he became kind of poster boy for the counterculture when the Beatles put him on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's. So he was rediscovered at that time. Um, and then obviously the Stones and Jimmy Page. But in other ways as well. I mean, there's other ways in which, I mean, the book is about that whole decade of the whole 60s pop culture was, uh, and also the political movements, many of them, how they were informed with a lot of sort of occult ideas. So it became for me something that I, I just, the deeper I looked into it, it seemed to have a more prevalent and wider sort of uh, presence actually in, in the culture at large. Alistair Crowley is, uh, should be well known to listeners of this show. Um, I don't know if we can call him a friend of the show, but I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you you previously were a member of the OTO, correct? Uh, yeah, very very briefly in in the late seventies in um, in Los Angeles. I'd say it's sort of seventy eight into kind of seventy nine, and then I 
lost interest in it. Are there any other organizations you still associate with? Uh, no, no, I'm, 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 I'm a loner here. I'm an independent. Gotcha. So you, you were kind of speaking to this idea of how esoterica and the occult have influenced music. Considering the Pythagorean and quasi-occult origins of music itself, perhaps all music can be said to have an esoteric underpinning. However, oh. did you, yeah, sorry. I was just going to say, did you know of any people incorporating more specific magical theory into their music, or did you ever do so yourself? Uh, no, I, 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 I wasn't a good enough musician to do that. I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, I, when was I playing? I was playing in 1975 in, in New York, you know. So the reason I could play at all was that at that time it was very, very, very DIY, and it was very simple, you know, three chords and, and that. So, uh, but no, I mean, uh, but people have, obviously, you're absolutely correct. You know, Pythagoras, the early operas are informed by alchemical ideas. Uh, there's a, a wonderful uh, scholar named Jocelyn Godwin who's, who's written quite a bit about the history of music and its relationship to the esoteric or the spiritual or the occult in a variety of different ways. So, I mean, yes, you're perfectly right. And uh, I didn't personally know any musicians who were doing it, but I know people have. Um, and uh, also, you know, in, in other ways as well, you know, sort of when you get into kind of the experimental world or people like Stockhausen, you know, at that level, I mean, they're, they're really working away at uh, uh, trying to inform very complex pieces of music with with some of these ideas. So you're absolutely right, it has a long history. And even in this book I uh, just finished recently about, about Crowley again, it, it makes, I mean, one of the questions I ask is that, well, in the 60s, Crowley, Blavatsky, Jung, you know, and a few others, that, that, that sort of world, the world of the gurus, the world of the, of the, the masters and, and the occult and the spiritual and all that was very popular. It was very much you know, part of the thing. It was part of the, part of the counterculture. But when that, you know, uh, by the end of the 60s, Blavatsky and Jung and the others kind of dropped out, but, but Crowley remained as a kind of rock and roll icon. And uh, it makes a lot of sense because the same sorts of areas, I think, of our, of our psyche are being uh, addressed through music and, and through magic or ritual. It's, you know, more or less the same sort of thing. So there's been a long history of it. And people have always been aware of the dangers of music. I mean, Plato famously uh, forbid uh, most modes of Greek music uh, in his uh, utopia, the Republic, except for a few. There were a few select modes of music that he would allow. I, I just remember a passage from Plato that goes something like the the new song that the children are singing will destroy their uh, morals or something like that. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So the, the fear of rock and roll goes way back. So there's, yeah, you're absolutely right that there's, there's some connection in it. But my, myself personally, you know, I, I was never a good enough musician to actually kind of, you know, if it's in there, it was in the lyrics. Well, didn't you have a conversation or a confrontation with David Bowie about magic and such? Uh, yeah, but it wasn't necessarily, no, it wasn't about music. Yeah, well, it was, you know, it was a story. I mean, I, I, <laughs> um, I, I got asked to leave his, uh, this loft he had at the time in, uh, must have been about 1980 in, in, in New York. No, we, we had been invited. I mean, he was hanging out. He had been at clubs. I, and I, I didn't know him, but we, we, we shared a concert, a tour together when Blondie opened for, uh, 1977, Blondie uh, did a tour with Iggy Pop, and Bowie was playing in Iggy's band at the time, sort of incognito. So, you know, we were, you know, knew each other from that. And then, uh, any case, no, I got invited to this, you know, gathering at his uh, his loft, and at one point the conversation got up to the occult, where Bowie had been going on about uh, the occult uh, in, in different sorts, you know, whatever, uh, at length, and then... Um, 
when there was a sort of uh, awkward silence or something, a friend of mine mentioned that, you know, I, that I was into this as well. And the reason why is that uh, I, 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 as I mentioned, I was reading uh, this writer, Colin Wilson, uh, who was British, so Bowie would have known of him. And Bowie starts saying, oh, yes, Colin Wilson, uh, he heads a cult and a coven down in Cornwall, and he casts spells, and he starts making all these rather outlandish and inaccurate claims about him. And I, you know, rather sort of, you know, quietly and say, oh, well, no, David, I don't think, you know, that's actually right. And he keeps saying and saying and saying it. And uh, basically, I wound up telling him that he didn't know what he was talking about. And um, his, he has these two um, very beautiful women bodyguards. They were sort of like Bambi and Thumper out of one of the, if you remember one of the James Bond films. <laughs> uh, there are these kind of, you know, killer, killer babes. And they come over to me and say, you know, uh, David's a bit tired. Maybe you should, you, know, <laughs> you should leave. So, I mean, I was disagreeing with the great master. But no, but he, he, he didn't know what he was talking about. I mean, as far as I know, I mean, Bowie read... I mean, he was interested in, in fact, in fact, I've been writing about that again. It's interesting enough. You mentioned this in, in this book on Crowley. I do have a chapter sort of tracing, you know, sort of the major um, uh, people he's, he's influenced. And uh, Bowie gets the most stars because I think his, his interest in this sort of thing is more reflective and introspective than, you know, certainly more than some, some of the real aggressive kind of heavy metal adaptations of it. You know, songs like Quicksand and, you know, he's, he's, it's, it's a much more poetic sort of, rendering of it. But uh, as far as I could tell, he was reading, there's a book called The Morning of the Magicians. That's a great book that started the 60s occult revival. It came out in, in the early 60s. And it was this big grab bag of, uh, you know, fascinating stuff about alchemy and UFOs. And uh, one of the things it started was sort of the Nazi occult uh, genre. That, that That's a subgenre of the occult subgenre. As I said, genre books about the the supposed interest that the Nazis had in occultism. But um, from what I can tell from, from Bowie's remarks at the time and, I, and, and from you know, other things is that that was sort of the thing that was, he was really into at that point. But I, I don't know anything about him now, but again, this is, this is 30 years ago, so. What would you say is the most commonly misunderstood aspect of esoterica? Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. I would say that, well, I would say the two things, but they're related, so if you allow me that. One, that it's somehow the irrational, put it that way, and then that that leads to, in itself, leads to a kind of elitism. Uh, you know, only only these elite groups can have the true knowledge, uh, because it isn't knowledge that's arrived at through you know reason and intellect. It's it's not something that's reasoned out that we we can each can share in the process of doing that. It's it's you know, it's this uh, supra rational or supra logical insight or knowledge that comes to you through uh, through initiation of some kind. So I would say it's misunderstood because there's certain connotations that come from that uh, or uh, associated with it that, um, uh, you know, need to really be worked out. I mean, this is one of the things, I mean, one of the things that I would like to do and <clears throat> I try to do in my books, uh, not specifically, but just in the tone I take is to not necessarily demystify, but sort of take, try to subtract the sensational character to a lot of um, interest in esoterica or the occult or mysticism. Or, I mean, in a way, get it so that we can talk about it in the way that people talk about sex now without being embarrassed or the kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink kind of reflex, you know, you know, where, you know, uh, ooh, you know, you talk about sex and everyone's sort of titillated. Now, we, we, we've kind of made it bland and boring in many ways, because, you know, we can just talk about it clinically now. 
Um, but we still have this sort of what, what I call the woo-woo factor about talking about the occult and, and, and um, esoterica and related things. You know, it's sort of like the X-Files kind of effect. So if we could somehow lessen that so that we can look at these things as what they are, they're part of they're part of our culture. They're part of the, the, they've been in, involved in Western culture and Western consciousness since the beginning. So I'm not I'm not arguing some conspiracy theory that you know they are the true power behind everything, not something like that. But just if you do look at it with the you know uh, un, unbiased objective eye, I think you'll see that um, as as we both you know talked about talking about music, there's um, an influence coming from this area that's there you know from the beginning, and it's only in in recent times that you know, relatively recent times that the the official or the, the reigning sensibility denies it and rejects it. You know, it's only in the, the modern period, the last 300 years, more or less, that it's considered something rejected and uh, superstition or absurd or to be avoided. So I, I think if we could somehow be able to look at these things without the sensationalism in them, uh, which I think is being done in some ways in the academic world now. There's, there's a, along with the renewed interest in the occult and related things in the pop world, in, in the world of celebrities, there's also been uh, a new interest or a brand new interest in it in the academic world. It was absolutely rejected and ignored for most of its existence. And now it's, uh, you know, many universities have, have um, departments in esotericism or Western mysticism or hermeticism there's lots of conferences going on so it's a hot thing now so um it's uh, possible that um you know there may be uh, a change in the way that it's perceived generally this doesn't mean everybody should go out and you know read their tarot cards or something that that that's that's the thing it's it doesn't mean that it means trying to understand what what has this whole sort of uh secret or rejected or other tradition uh, what, what's its purpose? What, what has it been doing for us, for the West, for, for our consciousness um, all these years? In your book, Turn Off Your Mind, you speak of the darker esoteric currents running through pop culture during the 60s. Do you see this as a particularly dark time, or are you merely trying to clarify a, a time period that is so often painted with a very, with a, with a very love and, and light brush? Right, right. Uh, do, do I see the 60s as particularly dark or am I, am I just trying to show the dark side that is is ignored? Um, I don't know if it's particularly dark, but I, I think that, that, yeah, that contrast is interesting to me because I didn't I didn't start out wanting to do that. When I first had the idea for the book, I just wanted to do a book about the occult revival of the 1960s because um, it seemed to me there was enough material there to, you know, put together uh, as a kind of whole sort of cultural kind of movement. But as, as, as I was doing the research and reading more about uh, the 60s, that I started to see, you know, the dark side of it. A great um, British historian, James Webb, who was an early historian, he, uh, he was an academic, but he did, you know, rig rigorous, rigorous history, uh, writing fascinating books about the occult from, you know, from a mostly, a, you know, rationalist, you know, mainstream thinker's point of view. He he wasn't an occultist in, in any way. But even but even he he's he he was saying how much a lot of the how, how similar a lot of the ideas that were prevalent in the '60s, uh, mystical ideas, back to nature ideas, and a variety of other things were also very common in uh, the '30s, leading up to you know the, the the Nazis and so and so on and so on. And so 
there's there's a link between this kind of irrationalism, this kind of rejection of the Enlightenment ideas, rejection of modern science, rejection of reason and logic, you know, and a desire to plunge back into the unconscious. There's a, a link between that, some historians have said and made, and the rise of fascism in general, or Nazism in particular, and so on. So I started to understand what they were talking about. And also for me in particular, as I said, I grew up during this time. So I was a teenager. I was 13 when Woodstock was going on. Uh, but I was aware of it. It was in the news. It was a big deal. The Vietnam War was going on. Uh, civil rights were happening. Um, <clears throat> you know, I heard about drugs and all that sort of thing. So these people were more or less the good guys, you know, the, the 60s icons, um, whether um, music and, um, you know, political, not that I really knew too much about the politics at 13, I just knew the Vietnam War was bad and civil rights were good and there was the establishment and then there were these, you know, wild, crazy, you know, yippies and, and so on. And so, but you more or less, you know, that was the picture. Those are the good guys and those are the bad guys. And so for me to go back and look at this time again, more objectively, however many years on, it was just interesting to me to see God, you know, a lot of those, a lot of those you know, radical left um um, you know, political activists, they're not that different than the Nazi youth, you know, who are breaking into the, you know, the professor's room and shouting him down because he's not teaching anything, you know, that, that's relevant and so on and so on. So the actual explicit ideology may be different, but the tactics involved, you know, were very similar. So I just started to see those sorts of things. And then I also question in that book and in this book on Crowley again, what I call, sake of a better word, I just call it this liberationist sort of philosophy which is an antinomian one, which means against the norms, uh, reversal of values. And so Crowley's do with that wilt, um, just do it. I mean, they're very similar. Uh, and at the, uh, uh, oh. during the 60s, there were similar other kinds of, you know, do it. Jerry Rubin's do it. It's kind of, you know, give into impulse, get rid of the rational mind, just, just, just act, act, act. And there's this magical sense that that in doing that. The surrealists are doing that as well. The beats are into doing that as well. And I, I, I trace this kind of, what do you want to call it, tradition. Um, you know, you can, go, you can take it back to people like Rambeau and, and so on and so on. Any case, so um, while that is liberating and while that is desirable and that is more or less the kind of default setting that we have for, uh, if we don't want to have a conventional life, it has its own limits too. It has its own problems too. And so... I guess I was trying to critique the counterculture itself and to sort of have it look at its own, not that there's a counterculture today, but, you know, uh, have it look at its own presuppositions and perhaps see, oh, well, you know, this didn't work, you know. I mean, Crowley was the character who did what he willed. He, he just did it, you know, to the end. And he, he wound up, you know, um, well, he wound up dying pretty much um, obscure and in squalid uh, surroundings. Um, as a drug addict and having ruined quite a few lives. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, I'm not saying that's all he did, but he certainly did do that. Uh, and so I sort of questioned the ideology behind that in, in turn of your mind, uh, while at the same time telling as many good sensational stories I can about the 60s as possible. <laughs> kind of a related question. Uh, I'm particularly interested in your work on the subject of suicide as I'm writing a book that points out the correlation and often confusion between a spiritual desire to kill one's ego and suicide. What have you learned in your time with this heavy subject? Well, in the first place, thank you very much for mentioning that I write about something other than the occult. That's, that's, that's um, <laughs> very gratifying. Um, uh, yeah, you're referring, I, I imagine, to my, my book, Dead Letters, uh, or the, the Correct, Deadless, yeah. Deadless Book of, of Literary Suicides. Uh, 
Well, I mean, yeah, there is, there is, you could say that there's a kind of spiritual suicide, let's say, or as you say, the death of the ego and, you know, actual, you know, physical uh, suicide, you know, um, and, um, well, the thing in the book itself, what I bring out is that there really isn't just one kind of, um, type of suicide. I, I say, I, I say what, what I was wound up doing is doing a kind of taxonomy of literary suicide because a lot of writers kill themselves because, because, of, because of depression, but not everyone does, you know, they, they do it for different um, sort of reasons. Um, people like uh, Yukio Mishima, <clears throat> even though it was sort of a political, uh, in a political guise, his, his um, um, suicide after, uh, after attempting to take over this military base. Uh, but it was really sort of an erotic kind of uh, um, act for him and also one about his self-image in some ways. And it was kind of the fulfillment of this whole picture that he had of himself. So um, he didn't strike me as particularly depressed uh, when he, you know, um, basically had him committed suicide in, in public. Uh, but then, you know, other uh, writers, the surrealists, you know, there's a more than more than a few surrealist writers who um, drawn to commit suicide as a kind of surrealist act in some sort of way, the, the sort of complete, complete absurd act, uh, which writers like Dostoevsky um, in The Devils, his character Kirillov, uh, who discovers that because there is no God, he himself is God. And the way he can prove that is by freely, you know, blowing his brains out, which doesn't make much sense when you think about it. But this is this, you know, Dostoevsky was able to, you know, he was able to put across the the uh, existential tension involved there. But um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I obviously it's a more metaphorical idea of, of suicide, this idea of death of death of the ego. Um, but I guess in some ways it can be equally as devastating, um, even though you're, you know, you're still physically still alive, you um, are somehow blown, blown away or blown out. Um, but I have to say, I've never been too drawn to this notion of ego death. I know a lot of people associate it with certain psychedelic experiences and certain sort of Eastern, I guess, you know, practices, you know, Buddhism of some kind. But there's a, um, a philosopher that I, whose work I, I am very interested in, um, uh, Gene Gebser, who's not that well known, I imagine. Not as well known as Alistair Crowley, I don't think. So, but if your listeners are familiar with him, I am very impressed. Uh, but... He contrasted this notion of what he called ego freedom um, with e being egoless, ego free rather than egoless, or which I would assume would be different between, you know, would also be different than having sort of a, the death of the ego or, you know, being ego dead. You know, we're people, some people, you know, <laughs> I guess that's, you know, you can be brain dead and ego dead, I guess. So I don't know if that answered your question. But. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I kind of come at it the same way. Uh, even alchemically, the you know the king dies, but the king is sort of brought back. It's yeah. it's brought back in a more, uh, a more in either more enlightened or a more refined way. Uh, you you were coming up during the era of glam rock and sexual ambiguity. How does this tie into the concept of the alchemical marriage, the connection of masculine and feminine, and perhaps your writings on Hermes Trismegustus? Well, to tell you the truth, when I was um, uh, you know, putting on makeup to go see the New York Dolls at Club 82 in 1974, I wasn't thinking too much about alchemy then. Uh, but maybe it primed me. Maybe it primed me for it. Uh, you know, I, I guess in one sense, you know, that that whole. Well, I would. I think in, in all in 
everyone's development, there's probably a period when you have a certain, I don't, I don't know if it's androgynous phase or something, but you know, you do sort of wonder about um, what's the difference between, you know, you, or how would you be if you were, you know, the other sex or something like that. But uh, no, I mean, I, I, that, that when I was doing it, I mean, it was the thing, it was fun in the first place. It was fun to do. And it was in this, you know, it was sort of the, the more dangerous thing. It was like the next thing, you know, after the 60s sort of political, let's say, kind of um, radicalism, then, it, you know, it, it turned into this more murky, you know, kind of uh, dark um, um, kind of uh, radicalism and in, in sort of sexual ambiguity. But yeah, no, no, of course. I mean, this is, this is a, this is a, a very um, uh, powerful, archetypal, um, uh, fundamental idea in, in, um, alchemical, esoteric, Kabbalistic, Hermetic, uh, Taoist. I mean, most things I, I would say, aside from, you know, the more, uh, monotheistic religions, uh, the Abrahamic, you know, ones, um, <clears throat> Christianity and Islam, but I, I guess even within them, there is the sort of feminine side that has been more or less kind of pushed aside, but, you know, pe more people are aware of it now, Sophia or, or the Shekinah, uh, and so I, I don't know so much about Islam myself, but, um, but um, yeah, I, I think one of the things is, you know, there's a difference between acting it out, which, say, you know, you, you can do by dressing up as the other or whatever, whatever it might be, or somehow, you know, it, it uh, doing it in some inner way, I guess, but I think the danger with some of these things is that, you know, they can be taken too literally in some way. Um, and um, they may be more subtle, but no, you're absolutely right. I mean, they're, 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 it's a powerful, um, as they say, archetypal fundamental idea running through all of esotericism, I think, you know, bringing the two halves together. And even, I mean, the fact that we have two sides of the brain, that, that says to me that's, you know, again, there's this duality that um, those moments of insight and, 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 and gnosis, I would say, occur when the, the, you know, the two different sides who perceive the world in different ways somehow come together and work in this kind of unity and harmony. And they create something more than just the two, you know, they, they create this, what Jung, Jung calls the transcendent function, this, this other unexpected new sort of dimension of things opens up and, and um, um, yeah, the, the world's transformed. Well, since you mentioned Jung, and we've already mentioned alchemy, um, even Gurdjieff to some extent, uh, so we're going to be discussing a little bit of the awareness of the inner and outer worlds. And on this show and in our books, we tend to focus on synchronicity. What are your impressions uh, of the meeting grounds of these subjects? Well, I mean, I uh, in my new latest book, Caretakers of the Cosmos, I, I, I talk a lot about that. I mean, I'm I'm very interested in this idea of a, uh, what, what's called sort of the participatory universe, you know, uh, basically, or, or participatory form of consciousness, basically where the inner and the outer, rather than being, you know, completely separated, the, the membrane between them is permeable. And there's it, it, a flow back and forth between the two. Uh, and a very... Uh, I, I think that happens on just on, on an immediate level of consciousness itself, or the way we perceive the world, or you know the way our consciousness um, uh, brings the world to us is already that. But this sort of participation or or um, 
uh, open passage between the inner and outer uh, clearly comes to us in more you know shocking some you know ways in 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 things like synchronicity which uh, no I, I mean I'm I, I I accept it exists I mean to me it's just it's clear I mean that the you know I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in this I'm sure there's many many people who the whole phenomenon of meaningful coincidence where you're thinking about some basically something inside your head and something outside just come together <laughs> they, are, they are they are so obviously connected uh, in some meaningful way, not not causal. Uh, I don't make the thing that happens in the outside world appear so that it, it you know resonates with what's in my inner world. It, I just notice that it's the case. Uh, so I mean that happens enough. I have no idea how it happens, and I'm I'm not I've never been particularly convinced by Jung's attempts to try and explain it scientifically or other attempts that bring in quantum physics and. Um, the strange world of elementary particles. I, I'm not saying they're not right. It just, it, uh, I mean, I just don't come away feeling like, oh yeah, okay, that's it. No, it just, it strikes me, you know, I wouldn't, I, I'm just as open to the idea that some kind of guardian angel, you know, just taps you on the soldier and says, oh, you should pay attention to this. You know, that, that to me is equally as possible. But in any case, life seems to be like this. I mean, it happens. So, um, yeah. And, um, but I'd say on an even more immediate level of, just perceiving the world when I open the eye, when I open my eyes in the morning. I mean, the modern world tends to think of consciousness as a, as a sort of mirror that just reflects what's out there. But um, this participatory notion says, no, actually, there's there's a kind of reaching out. Um, it's, it's linked up to the philosopher Edmund Husserl's ideas about intentionality, that consciousness is always consciousness of something. So it, there, there's, there's, there, there's, consciousness and then there's that which it is conscious of and so there's a, a, a already an intentional relationship there but you go out to a deeper kind of level um more esoteric let's say with people like rudolf steiner um people like pdu spensky uh but even in more mainstream philosophical uh, thinkers like Henri bergson who the uh, french philosopher in the early 20th century who's not read that much anymore but who's immensely influential then uh, his whole ideas about consciousness and um, our what he called intuition, uh, which again is a very common word that we we all sort of think we know what it means, but for him it was this complementary way of knowing uh, the world around us. And he would say, you know, our intellect, rational intellect that we use most of the time to get around in the world, and we actually need it because it's it's evolutionarily adaptive. It um, works by sort of cutting the world up into small bits and pieces. Uh, that which is really a unity in a whole, it, it turns into sort of separate sorts of things. And by doing that, it allows us to manipulate them and so on and so on. Um, but there's this other way that we relate uh, to the world, which is more immediate and it's more of a kind of flow. You know, he talks about duration. Uh, it's not. Um, it's not like, just reflecting the world as a mirror does. Uh, it's more of a kind of, I don't know what you want to call it, a kind of um, channel or flow of perceptions between the inner and the outer. And all magic, I would say, all mysticism, all occultism is based in some way on some kind of recognition of this. And I think the interesting thing to me, uh, after the years I've been reading about this stuff, is that we already experience this kind of stuff in, in, in our everyday consciousness. Uh, when we're listening to music, when we're engaged in reading, when we're engaged in a conversation or even, you know, in a reverie of some kind, we sort of turn, we, we slip out of the gear 
uh, of you know the kind of rational consciousness that deals with the world all the time. Uh, when we slip out of that to you know greater or lesser degree uh, into one where it's more of an open kind of relationship to to the outer. Uh, and we we've, we've come up with things to help us do that. That's why we drink alcohol and you know take drugs <laughs> and a variety of other things like that. It helps us to you know. I, I was giving a talk the other night at a bookshop here, uh, Watkins, a, a very famous um, cult bookshop that goes back to the uh, 1880s. Um, and I was saying how you know we we take we drink we take drugs to get out of it. And that whole phrase just came to me. So well, get out of it. Well, get out of what? What is it that you're getting out of? You know when you're getting out of it and you realize what well, you're getting out of this. I was talking about the difference between right and left brain, um, but out of this kind of left brain, logical, practical, utilitarian um, way of relating to the world, which is absolutely necessary, but we get stuck into it. You know, uh, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, we're, we, we are all works in progress. You know, we, we don't have we don't have the you know, it's all DIY with us. We don't have the guidebook to ourselves. So we have to find these things out you know, over time. But um, we do have this other mode of consciousness that I think all mysticism and all of these things is aiming at getting us into. But we don't quite know how to you know, get into it without these sort of crude methods now. Any particularly profound synchronicities in your life or career? Oh, God, I had, I had, I had, I had, uh, well, I mean, I had quite a few. I, 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 I've, I mention them in footnotes uh, in my books. Um, I mean, I can tell, I mean, there's some very funny ones. I mean, there's one, uh, well, I'll just say one. I, some years ago, uh, I was uh, waiting for a bus <clears throat> here, in, here in London, and I was reading, um, Colin Wilson did a little book about uh, Jung. Um, I think it was called Lord of the Underworld. Was, yeah, there was that. And I was uh, reading it, and the section I was reading was about synchronicity, and it was about this one case that Jung had uh, where one of his uh, clients uh, was about to get married, and he wasn't exactly sure about it, and he asked Jung, and Jung said, well, let's consult the I Ching and see what it has to say. And so they <laughs> threw, threw their I Ching, and um, I forget the number of the hexagram, but I think it was called the Marian Maiden or something like that. But the, the basically the reading was, you know, this maiden is strong. You know, one should not marry one should not marry this maiden. So I don't know if the guy wound up marrying the woman or not, but this was the this was the message. So as I read that, I thought to myself, and I had I, I long story short, I wound up coming to London after a marriage fell apart and I was living in Los Angeles and I was divorced and everything. And I was blown across the Atlantic by my midlife crisis. And um, so I'm, I'm here in London reading this book and I say to myself, gee, I wish Jung was around when I was you know, wondering whether to get married or not. And as I said that, I looked, let me, let me tell you, as I said that the bus came to the bus stop, looked up from the book and who do I see getting off my, the bus? My ex-wife. <laughs> wow it was right there so she was right so she was right there and uh around that time i had a whole series of cognitive dreams synchronicities around around her and it was very strange so um yeah there's quite a few there's quite a few so that's i mean they're 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 funny you know they're very funny i mean i mean uh one day i i hope i can i can write i can write something about it in the context of you know other sorts of things like that 
we don't have uh, Carl Jung here to consult the I Ching, but we do have <laughs> Andras Jones, who does something called Radio Aid Ball. Oh, if right. you're if you're ready to play, can we bring Andras in now? Thanks a lot, Alan. As you say, I am Andras Jones, and this is Radio 8 Ball, the game where we consult the pop oracle by asking questions and picking songs at random, engaging synchronicity and music, some of the topics you've been discussing. So, Gary, do you have a question for the okay. pop oracle? Uh, yeah, I'm going to ask this very broad question. I'm going to say, uh, is the new popular interest in esotericism a good thing? All right. Well, we're going to be using as our oracle fodder the uh, eponymous Blondie record debut <laughs> album from 1976 that you were a part of, and we'll see that what limit, we get. That limits the possible answers, but it's okay. We'll so, see what we, so we get. All right, let's go for it. It's always good. So, what is the answer to Gary's question? in the streets the 1975 demo from the from Blondie's first record the 1994 re-release the platinum collection with all the extra bonus tracks of which that was one that was Blondie's cover of the Shangri-La song out in the streets the answer to Gary's question <laughs> is the new popular interest in esotericism a good thing 
So, Gary, did you get something out of that? Well, I think just the, I would say the title itself, Out in the Streets. So it's, it's, it's out. It's out in the streets now. It's not, you know, it's not secret. It's not, you know, it's not reserved. It's out in the public. So I would say that's, that, that, that seems germane to me. You know, the esoteric, if it's out, if it's popular, if it's, if it's, um, it's popular with celebrities. I mean, even the Jonas Brothers apparently are into it. There was some, <laughs> something, one of the Jonas Brothers had a Alistair Crowley t-shirt on and um, um, that, that turned up on quite a few fundamentalist sites. I tell you, the funny thing doing the research for this stuff, just parenthetically, is that the satanic sites and the fundamentalist ones, they, they really are very similar. I had, to, I had to sort of look at, you know, make sure which one I was looking at when I was sort of doing the research. They're, they're both sort of excited about the same kinds of things, but for, for different reasons. Uh, but I also wonder with some of the lyrics, because it's, it's a sad song, you know, um, out in the streets, he, he was wild, you know, he was a, this wild guy. Uh, but she tamed him, you know, so he wasn't as um, rocking as he was before. So maybe that's, maybe that might be um, well, something to think about too. Maybe, maybe the fact that it it uh, it's becomes popular in this way, it loses some of its um, some of its untamed character. I like you know? I like the first group of lyrics. I mean, he don't hang around with the gang no more, right? Because right. it seems to me eso the esoteric tradition was secret societies and, and, and sort of gangs. Uh-huh. And then, and so it's like, and then he does, he doesn't do the wild things like he did no more. Um, uh-huh. so, so it's kind of like, you know, the Dionysian eating babies uh-huh. lineage and he, he used to act bad. And also I couldn't help but hear some of the personal story. I mean, this is a band that you were in and then you're no longer in the band. <laughs> and <laughs> she's singing, she, oh, well. he grew up and then he met me. That's right. uh, there's it's all about this guy who was wild and was a part of this gang. But now he's his heart is out in the streets, mm-hmm. out in this nether region of exploration right. that right. is as I see your personal story reflected in it. Hmm. Hmm. I didn't think about that. But hmm. and then I was also thinking about I, I always try and like I'm, I play with the with dates. And so I'm I'm looking at. The original of this song came out in 1965. The Shangri-Las put it out, and that a, some of, a lot of your work is exploring that, or at least some of your work is exploring that time in our history. Oh, absolutely! And how the how music has these uh, as this esoteric underpinning that was being expressed, mm. yeah, even in in what you would think of as sort of trashy pop culture. The Shangri-Las well, is well, a perfect well, example. Exactly. I think especially I think that's one of the things that I mean, I, my introduction to the stuff came in that context. It wasn't it wasn't through some emissary of a secret society, you know, sort of tapping me on the shoulder and, um, you know, very quietly leading me into initiation. It was through, you know, all this um, these paperbacks and, and uh, comic books and other things like that that were part of the pop culture. Uh, and so, I mean, in one sense, that's one of the things about I wonder if. Uh, it becoming more of an academic kind of subject now, becoming specialized and codified, which is very, you know very good. It, it, it will give it a, 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 a what's a, a more um, sense of being accepted, a, a part of the culture. But if it loses, I think that roots in the kind of you know um, grassroots folk world of of pop culture, there might be something you know 
some some concern there might might might, might not be as wild you know might not be as wild anymore he doesn't he doesn't do the wild things that he that he did before uh, or but, you could but, or you could but, hear that in the song there because this song you know it's a song that came out in 1965 it comes out again in 1975 that mm. these things move in cycles and oh, that yeah. you that it these that if it's an interesting and true thing it's going to be valid in a different context and in a different context. it's going to keep being wild it's going to keep being out in the streets. Mm. Mm. Oh, well, yeah, well, that, that's optimistic. Yeah, yeah, no, no, you're, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. No, it makes sense. Well, I mean, because ultimately I mean, these. Oh, sorry, you go. Well, I was, was going to say cer certainly we, you know, we very consciously did did that song because you know we were trying to re reboot the kind of girl group, you know, uh, Ronettes kind of thing. Um, mm. Obviously, but Debbie. So that was you know that was a very conscious kind of thing to sort of re repackage that. Um, but it's interesting, you know, mentioned before that the name of the group, the Shangri-Las themselves, you know, that comes from that comes from uh, Lost Horizon, uh, you know, that James Hilton novel in the uh, 1930s about um, this hidden city in, in the Himalayas in Tibet somewhere. And the, a plane, you know, lands there and they, you know, they wind up staying and it's this beautiful, you know, Buddhist, you know, monastery. And that itself comes from um, all the stories of uh, places like Shambhala. Which is hidden city in you know in the in the Gobi Desert or somewhere like that, and also like Madame Blavatsky's uh, tales of her masters and the secret monasteries, and so it um, you know it, again it finds its way it finds its way down. It's very strange. Alan, did you have anything? I mean, you, you guys wanted... actually hit on a lot of what I was thinking. Um, uh, I think the things that popped out to me was he don't play with the gang no more. I also thought like the idea of being outside of the sort of secret societies mm -hmm. or, or lodges and things like that. Uh, definitely was thinking the idea of the Shangri-Las, of, of the actual hidden city, and, and even, Andres, you mentioned this idea of time cycles. This uh, Shangri-Las obviously related to these other stories of the cities that appear once every thousand years yeah, or exactly, something yeah. like that. Uh, uh, but Gary, I actually, I find your, your take on it very sobering because when I first clicked it on YouTube, uh, trying to find the song, I thought it was mislabeled because in my mind, I thought you had, uh, Andras had said dancing in the streets. Oh, dancing in the streets. Oh, and I was like, oh, wow, that's such a great optimistic answer. <laughs> and then, but it's not, it's more oh, like, uh, oh, God, he's God. kind of oh, homeless. Arthur Reeves, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's kind yeah. of, uh, he's out on the streets, not dancing he's kind of homeless and wandering and at the same time there's a part of me that really likes the idea of something being decentralized and mm. free you know it's 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 a very fine line between being homeless and and not having a safe haven and at the same time being out of uh, you know, being in a decentralized sort of yeah, yeah, open yeah, no, source, I know, I know what you mean. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's you a know, very like, strange but yeah. sobering answer, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I'm 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 of older years these days, and so <laughs> I've been through a lot. <laughs> I've you know, so I'm I perhaps have a bit more um, uh, more reserve uh, looking at these kinds of things now. But no, I I just thought immediately it was an interesting response to the question just that title out in the streets which you know in one sense okay out in the streets mean you're homeless but also out in the streets is public so it's um as you say dancing in the streets so it meant to me like oh yes all the, all this 
hitherto secret sorts of things are now out. You know, they're out and available. They're they're given out to the public world now. Um, they've sort of lost. You know, they they don't have quite the same um, pristine character of of sort of secrecy and and. Uh, um, so on that they once had, but uh, no, it's God. It's a heck, you can get a heck of a lot out of this. I didn't realize it's pretty good. And as so hot, often happens with the Radio Eight Ball, we ask for a specific answer: Is it good? Is it a good thing? And what we get back is a very complex but accurate <laughs> reflection of it's not what that the, simple. <laughs> of what the yeah, it's not as simple. Is it a good or a bad thing? Well, there's probably not a good, simple answer to it, you know. I mean, I, I, it depends, you know. Um, I think both. Well, that's the whole thing. When you get something like esotericism, uh, which is, by definition, um, something that only a few people are interested in, you know, and it's not necessarily only a few people are allowed to be interested in. It's not an elitism in that sense. It's just it's by inclination, basically, uh, and it has a certain. Um, uh, what's the word? A complex and subtle character to it that requires, uh, you know, um, time and patience and so on and so on. And when something like that gets a bright spotlight on it, it, by definition, it would have to lose some of its of its character in some way. You know, it would have to give up some of its purity in order to be. And this is a common theme. This is a common archetypal dilemma in. Um, in this kind of thing, you know, whether it's esotericism or idealism or some other kind of philosophy, where in order to have a certain effectiveness or presence in the larger world, you have to give up a certain amount of your sort of innocence and purity and, and, and pristine, pristineness. Uh, so um, that to me, yes, it, 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 it would be, yeah, of course you could say, yes, it's a good thing. I mean, obviously. And, he he yeah, don't comb his hair and, and like he same, did before. You know, he, yeah, exactly. Yeah. He don't wear those dirty old black boots no more. So yeah, yeah. I kind of get stuck on the one pa the one lyric that says something like, "They're waiting downstairs. I know I got to set yeah. him free." Yeah, that's yeah. kind of bizarre to me. And that rhymes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, no, it is. It's I, I said I, I never thought you could get so much out of this. So it's actually quite interesting. It's an interesting. Tangentially, an interesting phenomenon I've noticed in, in recent years is that um, if I've been thinking about something or there's some situation that's been going over in my mind, a song will come to me. And it's only after a while I've been humming it that I realize, oh, this is very appropriate to, you know, the situation. As if an example would be if there's, you know, thinking about someone and you don't want to see them anymore. Um, and then that song, I can't see you anymore, baby, you know, from the 60s, you know, comes up in your head and you realize, oh, my God, this is so. So there's some unconscious, you know, some part of ourselves are unconscious that that is aware of this sort of stuff and sends up kinds of, you know, helpful, helpful sort of hints. Music so, is uh, magic, baby. Music absolutely. Magic. I, 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 I totally agree, you know, um, and we should be careful, you know, we should be careful not to. <laughs> Go too deeply into the dark side. <laughs> ah, Satan's claws reach very far. No, I'm, I'm joking. Do you really kids. think so? No, I'm just joking. Oh. I mean, I'm sorry. You, you, you can't see the ironic look on my face here. So. You've been listening to Gary Lockman on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook.com. You can check out more information about Mr. Lockman at GaryLockman.co.uk. 
For more information about the Sync Book, our guest, to check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you like what you hear and would like to support the show, become a donor. Just follow the links on the website to the donation page. Thank you and enjoy your day.